Wow. I never thought there would be an actual eyewitness report of what happened, and we have absolutely no way of knowing whether that's true at all. I'm showing my dad, Seth, the police report from Billy's shooting. Is he saying that Billy came into the bathroom with a pistol drawn? That makes no sense. The subject came into the bathroom and observed the PO writing on the paper. At that point, the subject drew a 25 caliber automatic and stated to the PO, give me the fucking paper, give me the fucking paper. And then the PO took out money to make the deal while the perp was holding the gun on him and said, Cocked oh, you know and what? loaded. While you're holding that gun on me, let's do this deal. That's what happened, he's saying? Okay. You see now, are those facts? Is that the truth? Am I looking at the truth? Is that what this is? When people put this, like, money-like decoration around it and stamp it from the city? This is truth from the perspective of the perpetrators of a homicide. I mean, you know, the police do have a reputation. New York was a very dangerous city. It was a very uh, poor city, and in terms of the way the city ran, it was broken. You know, the cops were dirty, and they were violent, and they were corrupt. When you're doing a documentary like this, in which there are culprits and victims, and um, the tendency to think that there is an absolute truth is perhaps false, you know? Because there are two people in a room to kill somebody. Both of them have a perspective on what happened, and one of their perspectives was shut off. And we're never going to hear that perspective. We're never going to get Billy's idea of what happened. Ever. For Rebecca, I think this will be just a thousand years of nightmares. So protect her from this. My dad's worried about how my mom might react to seeing the police report. I feel defensive of her. I feel protective of her. If somebody you love dies of cancer, or somebody you love falls off a pier and drowns, that's one thing. But if somebody who you thought was your life partner, your protector, your gladiator, your like soulmate, is viciously murdered, and then their body thrown into an unmarked grave, and you are denied even the right to mourn through the ritual of burial, if you're ripped away from that person in the way that Rebecca was torn away from her life with Billy, your grief is of a different nature. It's not distinguishable from anger. It's raging grief. It's like slaughter everybody grief. Today on the show... My mother's grief in the years following Billy's death leads her to an unlikely source of comfort and a big surprise. Me. From Crimetown, I'm Io Tillett-Wright, and this is The Ballad of Billy Balls. into the socks, which is like a pure speed, really good pure 
speed girl. Rebecca always seemed very vibrant and happy, and he seemed happy. They were great together. They were great together. I mean, Rebecca called me, you know, she called me right after it happened. Billy had been shot. I remember just the raw feeling of the, the fucking pain of the grief. And I would like to not remember that feeling because the only thing that stopped it was you being born. Chapter 9, Ophelia. Do you remember the first time you ever saw my mother? Yes, I do. Do tell. Um, I went uptown to a party. It was 1984. My dad was in his late 20s and working as an experimental theater director. One summer night, he headed to a party uptown. It was one of those nice Upper West Side apartments that are owned by a shrink or something. And... She was lying on the floor naked in a triangle of sunlight in a party where people were standing around with beers and drinks. And there she was, you know, this like leggy blonde. It was so, it was so outrageous what she was doing because she wasn't really uh, talking to anybody at the party. She was just sunbathing <laughs> on the floor with no clothes on in the party. And I definitely made a mental note <laughs> to get to know uh, that person, perhaps at another opportunity. That opportunity came a few weeks later, when my dad was out at a nightclub. I had a flask in my jacket, and I took a drink, and I got this huge hand blap on my collar, and it was the bouncer. And he said, get out of the club, and he, you know, dragged me by my neck, and on the other arm, he was dragging this girl, and it was Rebecca. He was throwing her out and throwing me out at the same time, and so it was like a, it was like a, it was like a romantic comedy, you know? Slam, <laughs> the door shut, and we were both landed on the sidewalk. And it was like, oh, what did you do, you know? And I was like, I was just trying to drink out of my flask, and... What did you do? Ah, some shit, you know, and whatever. And then we just went walking together. And um, we kind of, I, I was very attracted to her. You know, her combination of extraordinary femininity, like a showgirl. She was like a showgirl. But it was more like a showgirl that could throw a spear, you know, and bring down a horse at 100 meters type of showgirl. And she liked me, and we had a kind of a date after that. But it was, by then it was already five in the morning or something, so what date? My dad quickly realized that my mom wasn't an easy person to get to know. Rebecca, like from the very beginning, was extraordinarily cagey about any kind of details like exact address or exact phone number or exact anything. My mom is still cagey about personal details. Oh, come on. Where is this? By I don't know, the way. but this picture. Actually, crazy. she didn't want to discuss my dad at all for this project. Seth took that. Or something I don't know. 
But anyway. No, you were blonde when you met. Every time he came up, she changed the subject. I don't know. I would stick to the subject, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you are the subject. So you won't be hearing her perspective on their relationship. Rebecca was like somebody walking around with a big bundle of secrets or who had learned the hard way that you don't share personal information with anyone because it will be come back and bite you in the ass, as she would say, you know? The third time I met her was on the street on the Bowery, walking down south, and she was carrying a whole bunch of plastic bags and looked extremely distraught. She was, her fingers were all screwed up and wrapped around the plastic bags, and she looked absolutely desperate. And I said to her, what's, what's the matter with you? And she's like, I can't go home, I can't go home. And a lot of thugs and shitheads and creepy bastards, you know. And she's like, ah, you know, the door's busted, the window's busted, the heat's busted. The, I don't feel safe there. I'm like, well, come and stay in my place. You can stay in my kitchen. I'm just, well, there's room, you know, if you want to come by. And she did come by, and um, she didn't leave after that. My mom moved into my dad's railroad apartment, a narrow old place with a bathtub in the kitchen. And that's like a perfect setup for an exhibitionist and for a wild ass like Rebecca. It's just like perfect, you know, she could be cooking and having a bath. And I took the little middle bed and a half room. Rebecca never slept, so there wasn't necessity for a bedroom for Rebecca, which is a very strange thing when you think about it. I never saw her sleep. In months, the first few months that I knew her, I had never seen her sleep. My dad was a director and my mom was a performer, so they got closer by making things together. I was shooting a video, kind of very low-rent video of Hamlet, and it occurred to me that Rebecca, with this wild blonde hair and this extraordinary kind of power in her eyes and in her face and in her hands, you know, she radiates like physical energy and strength, could play Ophelia in a much stronger way than the like shrinking violet with flowers in her hair that's traditionally... Um, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Ophelia is Hamlet's love interest, who eventually goes mad with grief. And I thought that that had cinematically that that could be something very beautiful if I could capture that on camera. By gifts and by St. Charity, a lack five for shame. Young men will do it if they come to it. By cock, they are to blame. And then Rebecca would grab the book and go up on the roof and start reading these intense scenes. So what are you done? By yonder son, but and thou hast not come to my bed. It was this an incredibly dramatized, f forceful way that she had of doing it. It wasn't acting. It was like like a volcanic impersonation. And it, I, I don't know, it, for me, it was coming together into a very interesting version of Hamlet. Come, my coach. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. And that's when she told me about Billy. 
That's when she started to trust me enough to share the story. My mom finally told him what had happened. She recounted Billy's death in painful detail. She knew who had come to visit Billy that night. She knew that it was a police officer, an off-duty police officer in a cowboy hat. He had so many slugs in him that that's the act of somebody that wants to finish you off, you know, doesn't want you speaking, doesn't want you living. I didn't realize it, that it was very opportunistic and rather sick of me to want her to play Ophelia because she was made crazy by an event that took place in her life that literally made her mad, you know? And I mean mad in the old sense of the word, insane, with grief and anger. So, it's not something you want to roll the cameras on, you know? It's very intimate. That grief and anger, it started to show up in their apartment. So when I would come home sometimes and hear the music on super loud, like in my apartment where Rebecca was, and I would open the door. Beck would be with a bottle of whiskey in one hand, yelling into the speakers, singing at the top of her lungs the songs that she and Billy really loved together, you know? And I would go, Rebecca, stop! And she, nothing would stop her. My dad says the grief over Billy's murder sparked a fear in my mom that followed them everywhere they went. Some like on uh, St. Mark's Place, somewhere around there, walking with Rebecca, and there's two cops sitting in a cop car on the corner. And Rebecca gets all pale and kind of freaky. And I'm like, what's the matter, what's the matter? And she's like, turn around, turn around, turn around, don't face that way. I'm like, why, what, what, what? And I turn around, of course, you know, and I see these two cops sitting in the car, and I'm like, what is it, it's those two cops in the car? And she's like, I, I can't look at that guy, I can't look at that guy, we gotta get away from you, we gotta walk away from you. And then so we're walking away, and I'm going, is that the guy? Is that the guy? Or what are you talking about? Is that the cowboy? And she wouldn't reply and she wouldn't tell me and she wouldn't go any further with any any detail whatsoever but that she wanted us to get the fuck out of there and that that go that cop that was near the window side where we were walking by freaked her out entirely and that she recognized him and that and I said to her I was walking up the street like nervously going is something to do with Billy is this the Billy thing what's going on come on come on Rebecca tell me nothing you know My mom never explained to my dad what she saw. Instead, she added it to her big bundle of secrets and tried to keep life moving by going to auditions and pursuing her career. She'd already worked with some big names. Woody Allen, Stardust Memories. Is it true that you're a UFO freak? No, 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 we, our car broke down. 
I didn't have a leading role. I was just hired as an extra, and I got bumped up. He gave me lines. He must have liked me. Hey, you know, you should make a film about flying saucers. I also did a movie with Liza Minnelli and um, the original Arthur, Dudley Moore. You're not going to want to be a waitress for the rest of your life. I, I did a walk for Luther Vandross' first music video. You know this song? That's me walking in the video. I had the million dollar walk. My mom was disciplined in her career, and living in my dad's kitchen was working out fine somehow. And then, in the spring of 1985, something caught my dad's eye. I had noticed that she had a little bit of a bump. You know, and for Rebecca to be a pound over, she just was working out extra hard in the last month, trying to get rid of this slight expansion of her waist. And she would talk about it. You know, like, I can't fucking get rid of this. You know, I'm like, what am I doing? I can't be getting weight. It's not possible. It's like, ah, you know, she'd be like doing 90,000 sit-ups. And then one night I was just sitting in bed and watching her at four in the morning thinking, how in God's name am I going to go to sleep? She's stirring a pot on the stove and she had her hand on her belly. And it was the classic person protecting their belly from the stove, the fire, a splatter or something. She was holding herself and I just said to her, Rebecca, you are with child. And she was like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here, you know. I'm like, Rebecca, you're pregnant. You're pregnant. And she said, that is insane. Don't tell me I'm a woman. I know my own body. Don't tell me what's going on inside my body. And I'm like, you know what? You don't know shit. Then we went and she saw a doctor and was examined. And <laughs> she was five and a half months pregnant. She wasn't, you know, a little pregnant. She was, it was, it was very, very far down the line. And that's when Rebecca admitted to me, uh, you know, there's some, uh, I've been, I do a little, uh, I commune with Billy. And I'm like, what? She's like, well, I take his drug. And I'm like, oh, yeah? What drug is that, you know? And so that's when she said, disoxin. And that's when I looked up disoxin. Disoxin, Billy's drug of choice. A prescription methamphetamine. And I called up the company that made it. And uh, they said, yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely teratogenic. And I'm like, can you be more specific? And they're like, teratogenic, foot coming out of head, you know, arm from butt, you know, anything can happen. And I just kind of, you know, like went to pieces. What, how did she, like, what happened then? Did she stop? Oh, yes, immediately. Immediately. She absolutely, uh did everything to be healthy and to be strong. My mom got clean and kept performing. All right, what's up? This is her in a movie called Sleepwalk by Sarah Driver. Hey, man, what are you doing? I don't have anything to do with that. 
<laughs> Sarah's movie, Sleepwalk, um, playing the fence, uh, uh, very pregnant, just like a month before I was born. My mom is seriously pregnant in the clip, in a wife beater on a nasty downtown street. A guy pulls up in a stolen hoopty. What's the matter with the car? Yeah, nothing is wrong with a car. I don't deal with kids, you know that. He's bringing a stolen car. Uh, he doesn't know it, but there's a little kid asleep in the back seat. Yeah, what, what do you think, I'm stupid? Get this fucking car out of here. It's a really good scene. I'll get rid of the kid and bring back the car. No, man, don't bring the car back. Don't you come back. Don't come back with the car without the car. Get in the car and split. Uh, get in the car and split. Don't you split just yet. Coming up after the break, a special delivery. Me. You know, we wanted to have you on the kitchen floor, and we had prepared everything to have a birth at home, but we immediately discovered that you were backwards. You were facing out spine to spine, which can be a very painful birth. And so Before I even took a breath, I was causing problems. So my parents took a cab to St. Vincent's Hospital, where I was born on September 2nd, 1985. And um, she delivered you and put you right in my arms. And I checked if there was a hand coming out of your forehead. And um, you opened your eyes in my arms. You, you, you boink, boink, looked right at me. And um, that was how you were born. What did my mom do with me when you first got home from the hospital? She went from, I don't want no babies bothering me. You're going to build a wall right here in the kitchen and the baby's on that side and I'm on this side. And, you know, it's the whole thing to like a dragon with a dragon egg. And she just became the most protective, uh, wildly defensive, uh, utterly devoted mother you will ever see in your life. She just like put you under her arm and wouldn't let anyone even near you, you know. My mom and dad tried to make it work for a while. We thought we would try to be together, to, to create a kind of stable couple for you. But we never thought... You're right for me, and I'm right for you, and we're going to make a life together. That just wasn't, it was obviously, on the, actually the contrary was obvious, you know, that we were utterly incompatible. Very quickly, Rebecca's choices about what was the right way to raise a child uh, became just absolutely intransigent. I decided to move out. My dad moved to a nearby loft when I was around one. They had some fundamental differences that they just couldn't work through. You know, no, in, in terms of health and nutrition, her ideas were so extreme and so violently enforced. You couldn't eat this. You couldn't eat that. And I was completely um, against that form of upbringing. Her extreme was, was really to the point of just like steamed vegetables in her fingers being handed to you at your mouth. You and I would go out together and you'd eat a Drake's cake and I'd come home and bring you home and Rebecca would go, Drake's cake. It would be like so freaky. But it wasn't just the strict diet. There was something else that really bothered my dad. Rebecca decided that you were going to be in showbiz. And I suddenly realized that my worst fear of what 
um, Rebecca could become in relation to you was actually coming true, that she was becoming a stage mom. Yeah, yeah. I'm still playing. Not the guitar, though. You know what I'm saying? This is my first role, when I was two, in a movie called Kiss Daddy Goodnight. You gave me 20. I gave you a 50, Rebecca. What'd you do with the rest of the money? Steve Buscemi played my dad. Go get your own beer. And my mom played my mom. The movie was Uma Thurman's debut, too. You want to sing? Come on. But Hollywood was only a piece of my mom's master plan for me. You were going to be um, a Broadway uh, dancer, tap dancer, a singer, a star, whatever. You were going to go to audition after audition after audition. It, it was um, a horror to me. But she was so insisting that you do this. So that battle um, turned into a series of fights that were just so awful that I thought for you it was unhealthy. I thought it was psychically unhealthy for you that she was um, like pulling you out of my arms and like yelling in the street. And he feared that she might have been slipping back into an old habit. I was detecting that Rebecca might have been um, returning to disoxin occasionally. Um, she would have episodes. And these episodes, I think, now that I know more, were a combination of alcohol and disoxin, where she literally behaved in a psychotic manner, you know? She yelled and shouted and screamed and hung on to lampposts and was completely incoherent what she was saying, and her eyes were kind of like lacquered over with something, and she wasn't looking at you directly, and I didn't know what was going on. And it was a horrifying um, circumstance. My dad's new loft was only a couple blocks away, and I'd go stay with him on weekends. What was our relationship like? Perfect. We were absolutely, like, fascinated in love. Um, you know, we had lots of theatrics in the house. We played all kinds of role games of gangster, warrior. We built little chateaus and palaces. We went to the park a lot. We played a lot of ball together. Like you were like a master ball player of any kind of ball. And I'm like a sports spastic. But for you, I did everything that I could. I don't know. We just had fun. We went everywhere. We went to museums. We went to... We walked a lot, you know, and we just did shit. I mean, I just recall always having the best time with you, and this made things even worse. Because then, when you would have to go back to Rebecca, you wouldn't want to go. And it was every single time, this violent ripping away. Like, literally, you screaming and saying, Dad, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And Rebecca, like, feeling infuriated that you didn't want to go with her. And then, when I was six, my dad took a job with a traveling dance company and left the country. He wouldn't move back to New York for over a decade. For a long time, I couldn't reconcile how or why he would have left me behind like that. But there was a key piece of information that I didn't have. There was something that you were hiding from me. Oh, yeah. I didn't tell you that I was a heroin addict. 
that I was very ill. You know, one day without 150 bucks worth of heroin and I'm practically a dead body. So it's not like I'm kind of a valiant knight able to rescue you. I mean, myself, deeply impaired, you know? So, it, you know, in the end, not in the end, but in the middle, it became a question of what, what do you rescue first? My dad explains that he left New York because he was convinced he'd never be able to get clean there. And it was very hard for you to see that, and I think it still is hard for you to imagine that I would take certain decisions in order not to, um, you know, in order to survive, that it's just hard to imagine if you're not in that position yourself, if you're not really in that perspective of being a dope fiend. The um, kind of strangely super dad, you know, when dad's high, dad's like, oh, so much fun. That's actually an awful thing for a child. It gives no parameter or balance to a child. We are not even ourselves. You know, the banality of someone saying, well, I wasn't myself that day. Well, I wasn't myself that decade. Not only was I not myself, but I am not a really reliable reporter on my own behavior. I should not be narrating my own existence at that time because you will not be getting the facts. I was not in possession of the facts. This is a really hard thing to describe to people, you know? I'm sorry, I'm just having a moment because I've never heard you own it so completely. So I'm just kind of... Well, I'm learning. It's a life process. But I do not expect or want forgiveness or absolution of any kind. The only thing I could ever hope for is understanding. In the same way, in the same vein as me asking you what our relationship was like, what did you experience my relationship with my mom as when I was that little? I'm a little worried that we're going into family. Uh, should I not worry about this? Because it's, 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 it's your show, but I mean, this is you know? very difficult, very complex stuff, and I don't know if if this is the forum. I'm not. I'm not. I'm a little bit. I'm just wondering. Let, let's take a five-minute break. Let's let's get some air and come back, and then we'll and also, do the... Are you sure this is where you want to go? I get the feeling that you're, like, well, hesitating I, and backpedaling. So, like, let's talk about bit. it. But let's go out where it's not so hot. I'm just wondering... Oh, my God, your sweat is through into We step outside the studio to talk. My dad says he's nervous about painting my mom as some kind of villain. He says he doesn't want to hurt her and that he's worried about what I'm doing with this project. After a half hour in debate, he agrees to talk about his concerns on Mike. It's not that I'm not prepared to talk about it, but it's just under the under the circumstances of us recording our conversation about your life in some vague connection to Billy Bowles. I don't know if it's the best place to Um Well it's not so vaguely connected to Billy Balls. I explained to my dad that Billy's story is incomplete without the story of the lives his death affected. His killing caused a rupture in my mom's psyche, 
a trauma that rippled into my own life. I grew up in a house of grief, helping her carry the weight of her loss. And sometimes that grief was so explosive that I became collateral damage. As an adult, I refused to let her go, to shut her out, to give up on her. But to do that, to keep her close to me, I have to find some understanding of the pain that made her lash out so viciously during my childhood. You know, learning to forgive, like that's such a, like a, it's like on a Hallmark card somewhere. But at a certain point, we have to acknowledge and accept that there were things that happened that caused trauma. The only success I have ever had in finding any peace around my relationship with my mother specifically has been from understanding. That is why I'm doing this project. Good. In the next chapter of The Ballad of Billy Balls... This is it, is it? Yep, this is the building. I'll never forget these columns, ever. So the New York County Family Court. Really bad shit happened here. Crime Town is Zach Stewart Pontier and Mark Smerling. The Ballad of Billy Balls is hosted by me, Io Tillett Wright, and made in partnership with Cadence 13. You can find me on the internet. I'm Io Loves You on Everything. And if you're interested in my story, I wrote a book about all of this stuff. It's called Darling Days. We also want to hear from you. We have a voicemail that we set up for you to call us. Here's Yuka. I know that you've been concerned about whether this podcast is the right thing to do for your mom, but um, I think it's wise to not leave yourself out of that equation. His death is probably this inextricable part of your identity. I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter if this is the best thing to do or the right thing to do for your mom, because it seems like maybe something that you need to do. And I really admire you for doing it. I think it's super gutsy and inspiring. Thank you, Yuka. If there's something on your mind, thoughts, feelings, complaints, a joke, whatever, call us and leave us a voicemail at 570-392-9660. I love hearing from you guys. You can also get into our discussion forum on our website, theballadofbillyballs.com. The show is produced by me, Kevin Shepard, and Ryan Swikert. Our senior producer is Austin Mitchell. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Mark Smerlin. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed by Sam Baer. Sound design and music by Kenny Kusiak. Additional music by Shibo Pampolonia. Thank you, Shibo. Dope name. Our title track is Dark Allies by Light Asylum. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Special thanks this week to my dad, Seth, for being so open and honest and always growing with me. Thanks to Daniela Araya, Rachel Lee Wright, Emily Wiedemann, Green Card Pictures, Alessandro Santoro, Bill Clegg, 
Ben Davis, Orrin Rosenbaum, and the team at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Steve Halterman for letting me into the station to record this one. And of course, my mom, without whom none of this would be possible. Hey.